Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, I speak with Andrea Leong about the March for Science and Jared about prawn plastic. But first up, here's the news about computers that listen to your imagination. Silent sounds. Last week it was signals to your face muscles. This week it's signals inside your brain. Researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, have been able to decode electrocorticographic signals from the brain of a piano player imagining sounds. The man had electrodes implanted in the temporal lobe of his brain to monitor his epilepsy. This region of the brain contains the auditory cortex responsible for hearing. The researchers asked the man to play Chopin's Prelude in C minor and Bach's Prelude in C major on an electronic piano. They recorded the electrical activity in his temporal lobe and also the sound from the piano. This allowed them to match the sound of the note with the exact brain activity that processed it. Afterwards, they asked him to play the same two pieces, but to imagine hearing the music while they switched off the speakers on the electronic piano. This time, they could match the timing of his key presses with the sounds he imagined. They found that there are neurons that are activated in both tasks, as well as groups of brain cells that are only active when hearing sounds, and others that are only active when imagining sounds. The researchers conclude that humans have a shared neural representation of sound between sounds they hear and sounds they imagine. From a model of this shared neural representation, they've trained a computer to recognise the imagined sounds. The team's ultimate goal is to perfect their algorithm and build it into a device that can allow people to speak who are severely paralysed or suffer locked-in syndrome. Their paper was titled Neural Encoding of Auditory Features During Music Perception and Imagery and was published in the journal Cerebral Cortex. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Last year, the first March for Science was a protest in 600 cities around the world against the anti-science policies of conservative governments. This past weekend was the second March for Science. Andrea Leong is a microbiologist working on microbiome research. She's also a volunteer for the March for Science. 
I spoke to her a few days before the march. I began by asking, why are you marching? Well, there's a lot of reasons that we march for science, but I'm marching to get more truth in politics. But I should mention that the march organisation has four pillars that it really wants to make clear. Those are universal literacy, number one, which is that everyone has access to scientific education, and that puts the obligation on our policymakers to provide that um, science education for everyone. Number two is open communication. So that's putting a high value on science communication and also making sure that we have a high degree of academic freedom to study things that perhaps aren't popular. And we should be having trust there in the scientific process that any research that is not rigorous will be found out by continuing with more rigorous research. Number three is informed policies. So what we want there is for our governments and policymakers to have their policies informed by the evidence. So rather than ignoring or in some cases actually contradicting the evidence. If you say that you have one aim in policy, then you should be following the evidence towards that policy aim. And number four is stable investment in scientific research in this country. And uh, far from being self-serving, which is perhaps a criticism, stable investment in scientific research is actually for the future good. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's an investment. So time and money and research efforts that are invested now will lead to gains in the long run. And the march last year was partly inspired by the election and anti-science policies of conservative governments around the world, particularly in Australia and the US and perhaps Britain. What's happened since then? Is it Did people listen? Has it got a bit better or, or a bit worse? Well, thinking about what has happened uh, in Australia and around the world since the last March for Science, this time last year, from my point of view, it seems to be pretty much the same in that there just seems to be a lot of interference, a lot of running interference um, instead of giving the public the clear facts so that we can make a good decision. So we're marching again this year because it's easy to ignore or dismiss a single march as being a one-off event, but we plan to march this year and into the future because while one, one march is an event, two marches or more is a movement. And is there more to the movement now than just the marches once a year? There's discussions about the further aims of the march outside of the march day. So what can be done to put a little bit of pressure on our policymakers to make sure they look at evidence when they're forming policy? So when this government first got re-elected, they had the innovation agenda and the ideas boom. Have they fulfilled any of that? Well, it's a bit hard to give a yes or no answer, I guess, but it's certainly one of the things that the March for Science is concerned about is the fact that for the second time, we don't have a science minister. And that's only the second time since the 1930s, the first time being uh, immediately when the Abbott government was elected in 2013. So without a science minister, it's, um, it's really not clear who is responsible for a lot of those items that would have been under the science portfolio um, for any time except for now. So we do have 
in under the Australian government, we do have a science council made of some ministers, uh, the chief scientist and some academic and industry members. But we really would like to see the science minister reinstated. Having the minister there is, I think it's really important to, for the Australian people to see that Australia is a country that cares about science in that way. It's also about coordination, isn't it? So you've got one minister who would coordinate scientific research and science generally and science information as opposed to it being sort of spread out amongst all these different researchers or junior ministers and there's nobody to actually complain to. So if you want to complain about CSIRO not being run properly, for example, other than CSIRO, you can't really complain to the government if there's no science minister. Yeah, absolutely. Having a minister responsible for that portfolio makes things more streamlined for scientists and also for the public. It's got to be harder for industry as well, I would think, if they want to do, well, if they want to either do research themselves or invest in research, again, there's no central point. Yeah, for the last few years when we have had a science minister that has been uh, in with industry and innovation, uh, now the portfolio that we have for innovation is combined with jobs and I suppose that does make sense, but so, you know, where's our, where's our science and industry minister? And where's our science jobs? Mm. So the government's been making all sorts of pronouncements on things like climate change and that they want coal to burn as long as possible. Do you think they've started to convince the public? I don't think the public is being convinced. I think what we want to see from our leaders is a bit of honesty when they're talking about the coal industry, our resources minister, Matt Canavan, is unashamedly pro-coal. I think that was his words. Well, didn't he also say he's proud to represent the minerals industry? Mm. So he's, he's a lobbyist. More or less. Yes. Yeah, so I think this is definitely what I want personally from politics, is just honesty from our politicians when they're stating their intentions. And... I think that's one of the, the big things about that the March for Science is trying to push as well. So we want to see yeah, informed policy and to, have, to let the public be informed about policy, we need accurate and truthful information. Otherwise, we can't make up our minds about who we want to be in government. So how do we persuade politicians that evidence matters for making policy? Uh, one thing I think we can do is get out in the street this Saturday... March for Science is happening this Saturday in all of the state capitals, as well as in Canberra and Townsville. And the more people we get out in the street on Saturday, the more our elected representatives will see that uh, we're not going to stand for this sort of fudging of the facts in politics. And it's going to get harder to get the facts since they kind of spiked the census from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. On the one hand, you had the head of the census trying to abolish the census, and then when he failed at that, they made it such a controversy with people's privacy that people didn't want to fill in information. Yeah, so when we're talking about informed policy, it's not just uh, when it comes to climate science and having to look at the evidence there about uh, how temperatures are in fact rising and sea levels are in fact rising. But informed policy also encompasses all areas of policy. So that includes attacks on the ABS, uh, as you mentioned, the idea that was floated of having the census every 10 years instead of every five years. That 
reeks of trying to destroy the evidence or not collect it in the first place. And this other sorts of policy areas include, well, it comes into when we talk about the economy or tax or welfare policy. So some of the half-truths or, in some cases, straight-out lies that we've been told around that, those areas make it impossible to have a robust debate. I mean, it's so many different areas where the government seems to be making it up or where it's not evidence-based, like uh, drug testing people who depend on welfare. Mm, when, that's one of my bugbears. Well, you would think it's the people in the wealthy suburbs who can afford the drugs for the, in the first place, given that unemployment benefits haven't gone up in 24 years. Yeah, and one of the justifications that the government tried to use for potentially introducing drug tests for welfare recipients was looking at New Zealand. However, I think about one in 200 people in the New Zealand system failed their drugs test and it was an expensive program, of course, because you have to spend that money testing the people. So, again, it's a matter of being honest and just saying, what do we actually want? Are we trying to get people into jobs or are we trying to demonise the poor? We have to start from the true statement of intention. I think so. Of course, the danger is that they tell the truth and that they do want to demonise the poor. Mm, well, then, then there's nothing we can do about that, I guess, and we just have to vote accordingly at the ballot box. This is very true. So what are some of the other policies you'd like to see more evidence? Well, at the risk of pigeonholing the March for Science as a climate movement, we're broader than that, but that is definitely something that is, it's an existential question at the moment. Are we going to keep digging fossil fuels out of the ground and in fact subsidising that process or are we going to move to alternative sources of energy? I think that's on a lot of Australians' minds at the moment where we are seeing the brunt of climate change in a few ways including longer bushfire seasons and more severe bushfires and our neighbours in the Pacific are at risk of rising sea levels and literally losing their homes. So I think climate change is very much on a lot of people's minds at the moment. Well, particularly with such unseasonal weather as uh, we're yeah. experiencing. So um, I think perhaps Tony Abbott's comments about climate change doing more harm than good, sorry, more good than harm, <laughs> might not be appreciated by Sydney-siders in the middle of this April heatwave. Well, it's extraordinary. Wasn't he someone who was trying to tell people in Australia that people die of the cold but no one dies of the heat? Hmm. Yeah. So that was an about face after saying climate change is crap. And then, yeah, bit of a backflip there and it's no longer crap. It's actually good. <laughs> I guess it's whatever suits the moment. Mm. So there's welfare, there's climate change. I mean, there's energy generally, not just the fact of coal, which has now brought the free market Liberal National Party to wanting to nationalise coal mines. There seems to be a spread of batteries as well around Australia, big batteries. So it seems to me the the energy climate is changing here regardless of what the government wants. Mm -hmm. So the evidence is against them. Yeah, well, if you, um, if you count what's actually happening in the real world as evidence, then yeah, the evidence is uh, starting to turn against fossil fuels. So it always seems to surprise governments that people are willing to pay a little bit more to have a battery storage system and solar panels but people don't make almost any decision based on price alone 
If you're looking for a house or a car, clothes, your food, anything that you purchase, really, we often don't make a decision based on price alone. So why would Australians necessarily be expected to do that with energy? Of course, when you're talking about energy coming through the grid, that does have to be affordable. But I think it's absolutely absurd to criticise people who want to put solar panels on their house and have a battery system. It is really odd. And again, the facts seem to be against it. I've noticed that it's now cheaper to build a solar power station than a coal power station. That is great news. It's we're well past that point, which is why they're being built and why the government's having to force companies or at least threaten to force them to keep coal power stations open. They privatised things because they wanted the market to decide and now they're not happy with what the market's decided. Mm, market forces, eh? Indeed. Pesky. In wider society, is science being reported well? Sometimes it is. I see some better and some less good science journalism. The good stuff can be really good. But when it comes to just reporting in general, I think uh, we need to see uh, we need to see the facts. We need to see some of the claims made in the media fact-checked. So science communication is one of the four pillars of the, the March for Science Australia. Reporting accurately in all cases and also fact-checking the statements that are being made is also something I'd like to see a lot more of. We've got the ABC and The Conversation that do fact-checks on some of the claims that are made and it would be great to see more of that in the media so they're not at risk of just becoming a mouthpiece for any fact-free announcements. Although it was interesting to see that Michelle Guthrie first act was to close down the ABC fact-checking unit. It's now being done externally by a university. Mm, is that um, RMIT? Yes. Mm. Yeah, so good, in, oh, good on them for keeping that running. Indeed. I mean, it's, uh, it's just beggars the mind that you would take over a media organisation and your first thing is to get rid of fact-checking. Yeah, I mean, what is journalism? Exactly. I mean, I guess that's the general thread, is that the process of science involves evaluating evidence and coming up with understandings that lead you to further understandings and further questions and perhaps technological applications if you're lucky, but it's not the whole thing. It's about understanding and observation and evidence, and it's starting to disappear from all sorts of places. Yeah, well, I guess that's one way that we can all be scientists when we're making decisions uh, as we go about our lives. And again, I'm going to bring it back to the, the ballot box. We do need accurate information so that we can decide uh, who we want to run the country into the future. Andrea Leong, thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. That was Andrea Leong, microbiologist and volunteer for the March for Science movement, asking for policies based on evidence instead of ideology. And now, prawn plastic? On my recent visit to the biofoundry, I met Jared. Jared is a physical chemistry PhD student who started a business around a biodegradable plastic called Biokite, made from chitin from the shells of prawns, crabs and lobsters. I began by asking him, is biodegradable plastic plastic that rots eventually? Yeah, so when we say biodegradable, we're looking at... There's two interpretations of it. There's either 
made of a material that's biological, so it's naturally going to break down, or the other alternative would be an artificial material that can be broken down by biological means in a, in a natural situation. So biokite, which is our material, that's we're sourcing it from crustacean shells. So everything we're putting into it, we're trying to aim for being either naturally sourced or easy, easy to break down as well. Is this waste material from the fishing industry? Yeah, so we're working off largely prawn shells or crab shells or lobster shells, all those sorts of materials. Or also insects also have the same raw material as well that we can work with. Yeah, so it's all waste products that we're working with. It's biodegradable plastics. So what are they used for? So the application we're really looking at using it for is what's called agricultural mulch or black mulch. Uh, so it's used a lot, for example, in, say, strawberry farming. You'll take a long strip of plastic, lay it down over your field, then stick a couple of holes in it, stick your plants in it, and then the black plastic will keep down all your weeds. However, at the end of your growing cycle, you then need to rip up all that black plastic. You can't recycle it, and it costs you a lot, and basically litters all over your farm, which can cost millions to clean up. So our alternative, you're able to just... At the end of your growing cycle, run over it with your tractor, so chop it up into tiny little pieces. Then you can just leave it in the soil where it's able to biodegrade. And with the material that we've made it out of, it has a number of benefits actually when it's in the soil. So it acts, it will act as a fertilizer, it will act as a fungicide or pesticide, and it will also increase water retention within your soil as well. So it means you won't need to spend as much water. So we think that's great advantages to actually using it on a farm. So it's a, it's a dual use, really. You could almost just use it to improve the soil. Yeah, so the fact that it improves, the, improves your soil health is actually a really substantial benefit over any, any other alternatives on the market. And so what sort of scale are you going to be able to pump this out once you've perfected it? So we're still really working on scaling at the moment. At the moment, we're dealing with kind of meter by half a meter scale. So there's a lot more work. Ideally, we want to be able to pump it out to serve a, a number of different farms in continuous rolls so you can spread it in one go in your tractor and not worry about chopping and changing little pieces. So there's still a lot of work to do in the manufacturing process. And ideally, we want to be able to serve nationwide overseas as well. It sounds like the horticultural industry, in fact, even people growing at home would love to use this sort of thing. Yeah, we're mainly aiming at horticulture because that's where all the money is. But yeah, I have had a number of people ask, can we use this on our, on our home veggie garden as well? So I might have to gift a few pieces to a couple of friends. <laughs> <laughs> so how long have you been working on this? This project kind of came out of a University of Sydney uh, program last year called Inventing the Future, where we were given the task of solving the plastic problem, and we developed this material, realized it'd be great for agriculture, and so worked from worked from there. And so, all in all, the company has been running for about two or three months, and the project probably for four to five months under development. So, where did the idea of using chitin for plastic come from? We were initially looking at what materials we could use for food packaging. And so we came across some research by people from Harvard who were using chitin in developing a plastic. They haven't really gone along the path of industrializing that material. So we came across it 
and then also discovered that this material had great benefits if you actually applied it to plants. And so from there we decided that it's better not to work with food packaging where you throw it away in your bin and hopefully it degrades. Uh, but if we actually take it to a farm and use it there, then we can get these dual use benefits to the material. As a startup, are you part of an accelerator or do you have angel investors or how are you going? So at the moment, we're just nearing the end of a startup program called Incubate at the University of Sydney. So we're working our, our way through that, maybe in like 12 or 14 weeks. So we have a demo day showing what we've achieved over the past couple of weeks coming up, which is fairly exciting. Yeah, that's been a great experience developing, actually commercializing it, checking the farmers actually want that. And most people we've talked to have been incredibly excited about, about it and its potential. What have you studied to get to this point? So me, myself, I'm a chemist by training, a physical chemist. And so I've done a lot of the work uh, actually developing the material. But in our team, we have two other people. We have a business person and we also have an agricultural scientist as well who that it's a really good combination in terms of actually getting the material, making the material and then selling it to people as well. So, yeah, we're a good team. So is this going to be your life from now on? Is this startup company or do you think you'll end up producing a whole range of different things? Yeah, it's kind of up in the air at the moment. So I'm currently still studying a PhD while I'm starting this company. So if it gets big, yeah, I'll have to start working on it full time. We could diversify as well. I imagine we're not going to be stuck on one product forever. So we'll see where it goes. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. That was Jared at the Biofoundry with his plastic made from chitin that rots into soil improver after keeping away the weeds. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio and support the show. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Sound check and fact checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the community radio network, including two RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, eight Triple C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, two MVR in Nambucca Valley, three MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, and seven LTN City Park Radio in Launceston, Tasmania. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in 
on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.